Our scripture text for today is Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through, 8 through 14 and 16 through 21, and can be found on page 3 in the Bibles in front of you. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be, to be with me said, She gave the, me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kennerly. You may be seated. We've got a real doozy of a passage to look at this morning, don't we? Um, let me pray for us, and then we will do just that. We'll get into Genesis 3, the second part of this chapter. Dear God, I pray in this moment for myself and for this congregation, maybe those at home listening, that you would lower the walls of pride. I pray that you would speak to us, that maybe this morning we would hear things we've needed to hear for a long time that are comforting, we'd hear things we've needed to hear for a long time that are challenging, convicting. I pray most of all, Lord, that uh, my words would not be aiming at anything specific for each of us, but that the Holy Spirit would take the words of truth from this passage and apply it to each of our lives individually. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so last week, we're following along in the first few chapters of Genesis as we go through Advent. Last week, we watched in horror as Adam and Eve ruined everything, literally everything. Uh, that passage ended with them uh, trying to make amends for themselves. They had sewn together shoddily some fig leaves to cover their shame. That we heard about was an act of self-sufficiency and pride. This week, as we journey past that verse into the next level, 
of the effect of their sin, we begin, we begin to see the ripple effect, rippling outward. So we saw how it affected their, their own view of themselves. You see how it affected uh, the future and ourselves and sin. But this week we look at exactly what this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, have lost. Now, there's two categories of ways we can look at what they lost. We're gonna go through these two categories, but there are vertical things that we can see in this passage between them and God that they had and they lost. And we can know they had them and lost them because of the way the passage presents them. There's also some horizontal consequences. They had some things horizontally in the relationships with other humans and with creation that they now have lost because of sin. And so let's take a look. That's how we're going to start is looking at what they had and what they lost. As we look at verse 8, it starts this way. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So what can we know that they had, and what can we see that they lost? We know that there was this ongoing interaction with God. The verbs here state through their conjugation that this was a regular occurrence, meaning each day at the cool of the evening, God himself would come and walk with them fellowship with them. They had that relationship. And what we're going to see is they are losing that interaction. They are hiding from God. They don't want to have it after their sin. We can tell by verse 10 that before they had confidence in his presence. But now what do they have? They have fear and they have lying. Take a look at verse 10. So God has asked where are you? And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So he is declaring truthfully, I'm afraid now. I'm afraid. But is he afraid because he's naked? No, <laughs> that's not the truth. He's trying to cover up. I'm afraid because I'm naked. What is he afraid of? He's afraid because he's broken the one commandment. The one commandment. And so where there was confidence in God's presence, there's now fear and shame and lying. Adam and Eve, we see in verses 12 and 13, have lost their posture, proper posture before God. So God questions them, who told you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? God knows what's going on. Their responses are interesting. They're very multifaceted. We're going to look at them both as a... a, uh, a uh, as they're damaged horizontally, their relationships with one another, but there is a implicit blaming of God in both of their responses. So look at verse 12. It's not so implicit with Adam. He says, this woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, so whose fault is it really, according to Adam? God's fault. And then in Eve's response, she blames the serpent. Whom created the serpent? God. They both are, are, are not taking responsibility. They're not sitting with humility before God. They're blaming God. In verse 19, I know we're moving rapidly, but we're looking at the consequences here. They lost the life-giving presence of God. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. They had the presence of God. Again, we mentioned this last week. We didn't know how long they lived with God in this peaceful, uh, perfect time. 
of fellowship and life. But as they're near God, they have life. Now that they're being separated from God because of their sin, they're going to degenerate into dust again. They're going to break down. They're losing the life-giving presence of God. And so we can see in these verses, certainly sin has a separating factor between God and man. It separates them. Man loses what he had, what she had. But there's also more to be lost. There's fracturing in the horizontal relationships, whether that's human relationships or creation. Going back through these verses, back to verses 12 and 13. Adam's response. They're blaming whom they're supposed to be leading in every case. So Adam blames the woman. The woman blames the animals. They're they're passing the blame down. But listen to Adam's response when he first sees Eve from Genesis 2 and see how long, how far they've come from that initial response. The man said, this is at last Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's enamored with woman. After sin, what happens? The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's blame. There's division. Verse 16b, one of the consequences of sin is a recognition that sin has entered this relationship and that that beautiful, mutual partnership doing God's work as, as Adam and Eve helpers together, it is disrupted. It says in the end of verse 16. Gotta find it. Okay, verse 16, the second part, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, if you have an ESV from 2001, it reads a little differently there. The, the latest ESV, I think, gets at the actual, what the words are saying. It's saying, listen, you're going to want to control the thing, but you're not going to be able to. The husband controls you. There's disunity. There's disunity. It's not healthy. the ease and the abundance of the life around them. So we've seen the relational fracture, but now look at what's gonna happen with creation around them. Verse 16, God says to the woman, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The purpose that they were given to multiply now is a painful process. Not only that, the, the, the mission they were given by God to subdue and cultivate the earth is also a painful process. He says to Adam in verse 17 and 18, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, which of, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Growing food. It's no longer cultivating trees that are automatically producing its fruit for them. They got to go out in the field and plow and plant and harvest and deal with rocks and thorns and thistles. All of creation, all of creation was broken by Adam's sin. And so what can we see? The vertical and horizontal relationships, all of them were devastated by the fall. The ripple effect. It's not just shame and fear, it's not just internal, everything around them has been shattered. As we connect this with ourselves, what Adam and Eve have lost, we too have lost. We've lost it. What Adam and Eve had, 
they tasted, they lost. We really never have from birth. We were separated from God. And so we can see from the scriptures that we do not have as sinful people, pure fellowship with God. Look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a couple different places we're going to look. In the Old Testament, this is how it's described to the Israelites by the prophet Isaiah. He says this, your iniquities made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin is a separating factor between humanity and God. In the New Testament, we have the added beautiful truth of Jesus, but the truth of sin being a separating power does not change. From Romans 5, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. So where does doubt come from? Where does disbelief come from? Where does confusion come from? It comes from the sin of Adam and Eve, certainly, and it also comes from my sin, your sin, our sins. Separate us from God. Fear and shame comes from sin. In fact, it's, it's not just God being separated from us. Our, in our sin, we are irritated with God many times. In our sin, we feel irritation with God because what? Adam and Eve chose to be like God and we think still to this day that we can do better. So when things don't go our way, when things go awry, we're irritated, we're angry. And so certainly we can see from scripture because of sin, because of this moment, the ripple effect has reached us and we have in our sin separation from God. We also have lost peace and unity in our earthly relationships. Our marriages are compromised by sin. The hurtful things we say, the hurtful things we hear all the eye rolling that takes place, the arguments, the passive aggressiveness, divorce, adultery, abuse, abandonment, these are all things caused by sin. Caused by sin. And they hurt and it's painful. We've all witnessed fractures with friendships and acquaintances. Why does that guy, at, one guy at work drive us insane? It's sin. <laughs> it's sin. Why are we holding a grudge? Sin. Why don't we talk to our parents or our siblings anymore? I talk to my parents and siblings. Just saying. That's a, that's a thing that happens. Why are those relationships broken down? Sin. Why have in some places where you're supposed to be safe in church, have you experienced extreme pain? Sin. Sin. The reality of this, what I'm trying to get at is this. Everyone, everyone, everyone is tainted by the pride of life and the desires of the flesh. Everybody. Everybody. This wretched cocktail of these two things, we drink it up, we serve it up. And in turn, we feel the consequences of sin between God, between others. Back to the passage. 
So this reality, they've lost a lot already. And yet the question lingers, and it's a question that the man and the woman seem to ask with their answers, but who is to blame for all this? Who's to blame? Who's responsible for all this? Adam and Eve play the blame game. They probably learned this from Satan because Satan in his questioning of Adam and Eve in last week's passage, he was blaming God for things. Isn't God unfair was his general question. So Adam and Eve follow suit. They blame God generally, but they blame, Adam blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent. What we can learn from this though is that there is no varying degree of sin. Who's to blame? God's answer is yes. <laughs> Look at verse 14, 16, and 17. The beginning of verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. We'll stop there. Who's to blame? The serpent? Yes. He goes on to the woman. He said, because you have done this, you can read that into it. I will multiply your pain and childbearing. Who's responsible? Eve? Yes. And to Adam, he said, because you have Who's responsible? Adam, yes. Sin happened equally amongst all the people in the story who were involved. And so it doesn't matter which sin was greater or who sinned first or trying to weigh and measure the reality. Was it the woman's fault? Was it the man's fault? Was it the serpent's fault? Listen, all the sin in this scenario makes everyone equally miserable. Makes everyone equally miserable. So why does it matter? God says that each person in this story is equally to blame, and then he lays out consequences. Sin has consequences. God's first response to their sin is consequences. We see from the passage what's going to happen. Multiplying will become painful. Working becomes painful. Relationships become painful. The ease, the comfort, the unity, the life that they had come to know is gone. <laughs> that invigorating nearness to God is now separation caused by sin. We can learn from this just as we have lost as Adam and Eve have lost, sin also has consequences for us. And sin is still sin. The scriptures teach us for all have sinned and that means sin is equal measure. There's no degrees of sin. sinning. We're all to blame for sin. Think of two sins in your mind and here's what they're gonna be. One sin is one that you do commit and the other one is one that you don't. Okay, everybody got it? Everybody got one sin you do commit and one you don't? Um, it's a trap, you know it is, okay? Um, one sin is not greater than another. So the two sins in your mind, they are equal because they are sin. And one sin doesn't justify another. If the one you thought of that you don't do in your mind is worse than yours, it doesn't give you an excuse to do the one that you do. The person that has hurt us, the person that does the sin we don't or does the sin we do, guess what? It's sin. And yes, it hurts us. But that sin that they have done is no more than the sins we've done a hundred times over. 
other people's sins, sins we don't do, sins of, of others against us does not justify or excuse any other sin. Do you see what's happening? Sin simply adds to the tragedy of sin. It's all tragic. And what Adam and Eve don't seem to understand, we could truly benefit from. And here's what it is. We all sin equally and all those sins have vertical and horizontal consequences. That's the bottom line. Sin has consequences and sin is sin. Merry Christmas, by the way. Um, <laughs> praise the Lord for verse 21. This is heavy stuff. Praise the Lord for verse 21. Verse 21 gives us comfort and it gives us a model to follow because guess what? This passage is as heavy as I feel it. There is a lot of nastiness going on. There's lying and hiding and shame and punishment and pain and all these things. And verse 21 tells us something. God doesn't stomp off in a huff. God doesn't rain fire from heaven. The Lord God, it says in verse 21, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That seems bizarre. Listen, the only innocent party in all of this, God the creator who's been sinned against multiple times over, not just the apple, we have lying, we have self-sufficiency, we have pride, we have blaming, we have all these things now piling up. What does he do? He makes the first sacrifice. He makes the first sacrifice. God took the skins of animals those of you who are hunters know what this is like. Bloodshed. God took animals. He shed their blood for what purpose? To cover the shame of the blaming, sinning humans. Instead of stomping off, instead of responding in anger, God has compassion. Compassion. He didn't give them a sewing pattern. Think about this. He didn't say, here's what you gotta do. He did it himself. The same word here as made garments is the same as when he formed Adam and made him. He did it. He did it for them. He didn't give them an ultimatum. Listen, I'm gonna do this, but you gotta, no. He gave them provision. He had compassion on these pitiful, sinful people. God, the creator, God, the sinned against king. What does he have? He has compassion for sinners. God has compassion for sinners. That's the only good news after all this other stuff we've talked about. Are we all equally sinful? Yes. Do we all, are we all guilty and separated from God and in broken relationships? Yes. God has compassion on people just like that. Now, Adam, Adam and Eve, we've, we've skipped verse 15. Some of you are thinking the most important verse. We're coming back to that on Christmas Eve. But in that verse, God makes a promise that he's going to reconcile these separations. And these skins are, are, are a, a symbol of that promise. It's a symbol of God's provision in the face of their many, many wrongs. And for us, what happens, we actually live after the fulfillment of this promise. This promise is Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as we look back at this passage, we have a truth that we can find hope in, 
that this promise is fulfilled, that God's compassion for us, it takes the form of a sacrifice, but not of an animal. It takes the form of a sacrifice of himself. God's compassion for my sin, God's compassion for your sin, God's compassion for those who've sinned against you brought him to the place where he let his son, that he came to earth as God incarnate and he died on the cross. The shedding of an innocent human's blood. Why? For us to give us what we need, provision, provision of salvation from sin, reconciliation. So what we can see is this, church, in Jesus and only in Jesus are the consequences of the fall undone. Only in Jesus, through faith in him, by his grace, do we have, once again, unity with the Father. Sin separated us from God. In Jesus, we can walk with him in his word and talk with him in our prayers with assurance that we are heard. Praise the Lord. Those in Christ are called to the ministry of reconciliation. We can actually have compassion on those who sin because what? Jesus Christ has shown us our own sin and shown us what he did for it. We're no better, no worse. We're equally polluted and Jesus died for us and so he died for others as well. In the face of our egregious sin against God, that means very, very bad, he shows compassion to us by way of Jesus Christ. Jesus reverses the flow of the curse. And so Christmas, if you think about it, if Jesus is this reconciliation, if Jesus is this reversing of the flow, then Christmas is the beginning of that great reconciliation. The baby in the manger is God's sign and invitation and proof that he will fulfill his promise and undo the curse of the fall. And so in this third week of Advent, what can we make it? What is it? Advent then becomes a preparing for that great reconciliation. It's a time to think about the divisions that we have in our lives and how Jesus Christ undoes those things. And so this morning, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you're listening online and you're not a Christian, you're saying, I, I, I don't know who God is, or maybe you're mad at God, you, something's happened in your life and you're saying, how could that God do that thing? Advent is a time to look at God's compassion for sinners. None of us are perfect, we know that. None of us are clean, none of us are better, we're all in the same boat, and God, through Jesus Christ, has compassion on us. There's no better time than right now to look to the help that came, Jesus in the manger, Jesus killed on a cross, Jesus risen in victory, and to humble ourselves and declare our need for that. So there's no better time than Advent than to reconcile with God. He's made the way. Look at Christmas, look at what it celebrates and accept the gift that God has offered. Christian, praise the Lord 
that we have been reconciled to God already through Jesus Christ, but there's still more work to do. Advent is a time for us to begin to think about reconciling with with the things around us. Listen, take a drink of water first. We can't make people treat us well. We can't make that happen. We're not called to subject ourselves to abuse. That's not what we're called to do. The Bible is clear, however, that no matter how other people treat us, no matter how they will react to the idea of reconciliation, no matter what we've been through, we, by the blood of Jesus Christ, are to pursue peace. Even in our hearts, there may be no chance in this world of reconciling with someone relationally, but in our hearts, we have to find peace. We can't live in the pride that Adam and Eve are in in this passage, participating in blame, (laughs) weighing and measuring who's at fault. These things are useless to us. If you're reading along with me in Sinclair Ferguson's devotional, Advent devotional, he says this, and I think it was just a couple days ago, the love of Jesus creates an atmosphere so rich and dense it asphyxiates pride. It chokes it out. And so what we need to think about is we can't simply see what others have done to us. We must, we must see what Christ has done for us. We have to see it. We have to see it. Really, what is there to be proud about? The only thing that we can truly be proud about is that God has had mercy on me. God has had mercy on you. We aren't right. We aren't sound, we aren't good. All we are is saved, that's what we are. And so the question would be, are we playing the blame game that Adam and Eve play, deflecting attention from our own sin? We have to know that's pride, that's pride. Are we harboring ill will against someone? Are we forgetting our specific sin and focusing on someone else's? That's pride. That's pride. And Advent is a a perfect time to be done with all that. Advent is a time to recognize the sacrifice that God paid and that sacrifice, the birth of Christ, was for me and my reconciliation. Advent's a time to breathe in the dense air of God's compassionate love and to share that compassion with other sinners. We're gonna do that by, start doing that by approaching the Lord's table together. Listen to Paul's description of reconciliation from Romans 12. The Apostle Paul says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably 
with all. The Lord's Supper is just that, and it's an association with the lowly. The, the path to the Lord's table is a level path. <laughs> there's no one better, there's no one worse. We're all sinners, and we come to Jesus for what we need. He's the only one who can provide it. And so as we walk side by side, we are saying, hey, we're sinful together and we are saved together. And so as we come forward this morning, if, if the path to the Lord's Supper is equal footing, the question then is, well, who should eat and who should not? Well, eating the bread and drinking the cup is an act of humility. It's admitting first that you are that sinner. You are a, a fully sinful person on your own. And that the only hope you have in light of your sin, which is equal to all others, is Jesus Christ. And his compassion for you is all that can give you mercy and grace and deliverance. And so you've made that public profession. Jesus is your only boast. Those who have been baptized, which is a symbol of God's gracious promise and your participation in it, that is who is invited to come and eat with compassion and abundance. And so this morning, if you don't believe those things to be true, or if you're saying, you know what, I'm irritated with God and I will not let that go, I am right, he is wrong, or you have a sin in your life that you refuse to confess, you prefer it, those are all reasons that the scripture gives to not come and eat from the table. Let's just take a moment to pray quietly amongst ourselves. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing before we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, Forgive us for our pride. In this moment, I hand myself completely over to the fact that I am a sinner, no greater, no better than any other in this world. And at the same time, I praise your name because in that sorry estate, you carry me to the cross where Christ's body was broken because of my sin, where Christ's blood was shed because of my sin, and you did that in order to have compassion on sinners like me. So this morning, I pray that we would have courage, confidence, not to hide from you, but to walk forward, eat the bread, drink the cup, Admit our sinfulness, but also admit that we know who Jesus is and we accept his loving forgiveness. I pray, Lord, as we all, every single one of us, we, none of us have perfect relationships. We all have broken relationships. I, I pray that in this moment, as we watch Adam and Eve's relationship break and shatter, 
that we would know in Jesus Christ that there is reconciliation. It may not be this side of heaven, but Lord, I pray that we would work towards it by first admitting our sin, admitting our pride, and finding compassion. Christ-empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered, Father-willed compassion in our hearts for other sinners. And Lord, by some miracle, not by my words, I pray that you envelop all those things into this Lord's Supper as we eat the bread and we drink the juice of the wine, that we would experience your compassion, we would know that you are here, and that you would proliferate, expand compassion in our hearts. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for your ascension. Thank you that you will return. We pray these things in the name of the great reconciler, Jesus Christ, amen.